0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 26, verses 3 through 8, and verse 15. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Uh, if I had known Alan was reading scripture, I would have given him a much longer passage with more Hebrew names in it. It would have been really fun. Good morning. My name is Brent Nelson, and I am the pastoral resident here at the Leewood campus. If you are new to Christ Community and you don't know what the pastoral residency program is, then grab me or someone else after the service. We'd, we'd love to tell you about it. Um, I think it's one of the things that makes Christ Community a great place to make your church home. And thank you all for your generosity in supporting that program. In his 2001 best-selling book, Good to Great, author Jim Collins and his crew of researchers studied the factors that helped companies achieve greatness. Eight years later, Collins released another book called How the Mighty Fall, which looks at the other side of the spectrum, how companies, uh, powerful and successful companies like Circuit City, Bank of America, and Hewlett-Packard, went from huge successes and through a series of bad decisions into failure. He says that the decline of a, uh, he, says he makes a point that every company, no matter how great, is vulnerable to failure and that the decline of a large organization is always self-inflicted through bad choices and mismanagement. And many companies, after becoming successful, uh, become arrogant and succumb to their pride. One of the companies that Collins talks about in his book is Motorola. And uh, I, grew, I grew up not too far from the Motorola headquarters in Chicago. And um, I remember taking field trips to Motorola as a student. Can you imagine a more exciting place for an elementary schooler than the Motorola office building? But that's where they took us and, uh, and they had a little museum there that you could tour and they would show you some of the history of their technology and some of the cool new things that they were working on. Motorola was dominant in the late 1980s and early 1990s in their industry. In, in the, In the mid-1990s, Motorola developed a new cell phone called the StarTac phone. I don't know if any of you had this phone, Uh, but other cell phone manufacturers at the time were moving to uh, new digital technology, but uh, StarTac used an old analog system. Motorola's product was outdated before it even hit the market. But rather than halting production uh, and moving to a newer newer technology, which they could have done, Motorola just pressed on with it uh, when one of their executives boasted in an interview, 43 million analog customers can't be wrong. And within a couple of years, Motorola's cell phone market share dropped from 50% down to 17%. And it's not just companies that can be undone by stubborn pride. Of course, people can too. People like King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah was a powerful king in Jerusalem. If you look just at his economic and military achievements, He was one of the most successful kings of God's people in the Old Testament. But in his success were sown the seeds of pride, and pride led to his downfall. So if you're not already there, uh, turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Um, If you have trouble finding that, just find 1 Chronicles. It's the one right after that. Um, Bible humor. Um, So, but your Bible has a table of contents, so feel free to use that. We're not in 2 Chronicles all that frequently. And while you're turning there, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the historical context. Now, this is a period of biblical history that most of us probably don't spend a lot of time um, thinking about, and in fact, I think this is my th- the third sermon I've ever heard preached from 2 Chronicles, um, and I remember the first two distinctly. They were at 8 and 9.30 this morning. Um, and so, so for, for many of us, the, the chronology, I get, I get a little bit punchy by the third service, Um by, the, by the, the chronology of the Old Testament, is a little bit confusing for a lot of us. So let's do a quick recap, okay? So in, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a guy named Abraham and tells him to go to a new land and to go there and be a blessing. God promises to make Abraham's family into a great nation and that he will give Abraham's family the land where Abraham's going. So Abraham's family then is, is God's surprising solution to the spiral of sin that's taken place in Genesis 3 through 11. A few hundred years go by and Abraham's family has become a great nation, but they are toiling in slavery in Egypt rather than thriving in the promised land. And so God raises up Moses and Miriam and Aaron as leaders and he rescues the people from slavery and he gives them the Ten Commandments and the law to help them understand his character as their God and how they are supposed to respond to him. Another few hundred years go by and the people have entered the promised land, but it's not, it's not going particularly well. Who can forget Andrew's toilet bowl analogy of the book of Judges from a few weeks ago? It's not going well. And so God gives them a king. And first there's a false start with Saul, and then he raises up David. And, and God promises that David will have an eternal dynasty where David's descendants will reign forever. But that doesn't go all that well either. Another few hundred years go by and most of the kings throughout that time are, are a mixed bag at best. The nation itself is mired in injustice and idolatry. And So a few hundred years after David, the, the nation is conquered and the people are taken away into exile. The Babylonian army breaches the walls of Jerusalem. They burn the city and they drag most of the people off to a faraway land. This is Second Kings, uh, the very end of Second Kings around 586 BC. And exile is not the final word of the Old Testament, not even close, as God promises again and again that he has something new planned in the future. But this is the basic storyline of the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, David, exile, hope. And so our story today takes place between David and the exile. King Uzziah is a descendant of David. He's one of the kings of Judah. And in many, in many ways, he's a successful king. But like Motorola and their StarTAC phone, his pride in his own success leads to a big fall. So let's look at Second Chronicles 26 now and read his story. Verse 3 tells us that Uzziah became king at 16 years old and he reigned for 52 years. Parents of teenagers, think about that for a minute. Imagine, imagine not just giving the keys to your Chevy to your teenager, uh, but the keys to an entire kingdom. Uh, The chronology is is debated here. Many scholars think that Uzziah was actually, he he was a co-ruler with his father for some period of time, and he may have not become sole ruler until he was about 40. But but regardless, his 52 years as king is the longest reign of any king in David's line. From the description in verses 6 through 15, he oversaw a time of economic and military prosperity that was unrivaled since the time of Solomon. Verses 4 through 5 give us a hint, though, that in spite of his success, that's going to be described in what follows, that all isn't well with Uzziah. Let's read them. And Uzziah, he, he, Uzziah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now, that first sentence in verse 4 initially sounds like a ringing endorsement of Uzziah. He, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. But this is an example where we need to, where we need to read the Bible very carefully. The, the narrator, whom Bible scholars call the Chronicler, it's a really cool nickname, um, he's hinting at us to remember the story of Amaziah in chapter 25, who's Uzziah's father. If you go back and actually read that story, you'll see that, that the chronicler doesn't think too highly of him. Amaziah starts really well, but according to 25 verse 2, he did not do what was right with a whole heart. Okay, there are times when Amaziah obeys the law, but he's, in the end, he's known for worshiping idols and threatening the life of a prophet who tries to confront him. And so when we get to chapter 26 and the chronicler tells us that Uzziah did what was right like his dad... That's that's actually not a particularly great compliment. Like his father, Uzziah does not follow the Lord with a whole heart. Sometimes he's obedient and sometimes he's not. Like his father, Uzziah starts well and finishes poorly. In fact, it's a generational problem because Uzziah's grandfather, Joash, who also became king as a child, started really well when he had a spiritual advisor advising him, but finished poorly. And so half-hearted obedience is a generational problem. It's passed on from father to son to grandson, and each one has to deal with the consequences of it. So verses 6-15, they list off Uzziah's accomplishments, and it's an impressive list. He wins military victories against two neighboring kingdoms, to the south and the west, and the kingdom to the east pays him tribute. They just give him money rather than be conquered. And his fame and influence spreads all the way to the border of Egypt, which is reestablishing the southern border to where it had been during the time of King Solomon, who was Israel's most powerful king. So he's kind of being presented here as a new Solomon. He raises a large army, he fortifies the countryside, and he particularly strengthens the defenses of his capital city of Jerusalem. So Uzziah is a capable administrator. He's a strong military ruler. The word strong is actually repeated over and over again in this story. Uzziah's name means, my strength is Yahweh which is God's personal name in the Old Testament. And then in verse 8, it says Uzziah became very strong. The same Hebrew word is then used to describe his fortifications. He, He made the Jerusalem defenses strong. In verse 15, he was marvelously helped until he became strong. And then one more time in verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. So what happens here in verse 16 is that the man whose name means my strength is Yahweh decided my strength is me. Like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, he begins to think, is this not the great Jerusalem? I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. He gets a bad case of I, me, my, mine. In the midst of all his success, Uzziah forgot something really important. Look back with me at verse 7. It says that God helped him in his wars. And again, in verse 15, he was marvelously helped. First and foremost by God, but also by Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. That was verse 5. By his soldiers and military commanders, some of whom are named in verse 11. By the engineers, he's helped. They're the guys that invented the Jerusalem fortifications. And he's helped by the workers who actually built them. Uzziah was marvelously helped. And so verse sixteen is where the story takes a turn. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. The word unfaithful that's used here is it's a key word in the books of Chronicles. One commentator calls it the most important word for sin in these two books. It describes various kinds of covenant disloyalty, of of turning your back on God and on God's promises. In these books, it describes, before Uzziah, it describes Achan, who stole money that was supposed to be devoted to God. It's been used to describe Saul, who did not keep the word of the Lord but consulted a medium for advice. It's been used to describe King Rehoboam, who abandoned the law of the Lord and under whom the united Israel split into two separate kingdoms now it's used here of Uzziah and it will be used with increasing frequency in the rest of the book as the kings get worse and worse and the nation gets closer to exile. So what exactly is this unfaithful thing that Uzziah is doing? It says he went into the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, someone unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it kind of sounds like maybe he's just going to church to worship like we are on Sunday. But when you hear the word temple, don't think church building, okay? What you do in there is not like what we're doing on a Sunday morning. In the Old Testament, the temple was set up as the unique place where God dwells among his people. Remember, God led his people in the desert for 40 years when they were wandering in the wilderness before they entered the promised land, and he led them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The pillar of cloud or fire didn't actually contain God as though he could be confined in that space. But it was, a, it was a visible sign of God's presence to the people. So every time the people looked up, they saw the cloud and they knew that God was with them because this, this cloud was a sign that God was there. A few weeks ago, we talked about Bezalel and Ohaliab as part of our Forgotten Family series. They were the two guys, the two uh, um, craftsmen that God instructed to build the tabernacle, which was, which was the tent that Israel carried with them everywhere they went in the desert at the very end of the book of Exodus, they finish building the tabernacle, and the cloud, again, the visible manifestation of God's presence, goes into the tabernacle. It symbolizes that God has taken up residence with his people in this tent, and everywhere they go, his presence is going to go with them. And many years later, after the people have settled in the land, uh, David and Solomon decide to build a permanent home called the Temple for God's Presence. So when Solomon finishes building that temple, this is 1 Kings chapter 8, they bring the ark of the covenant into it and notice what happens next. It says when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The same cloud that led the people through the desert and that took up residence in the tabernacle now has kind of moved into the temple. God has moved in with his people, and his presence is in there. So going into the temple is drawing near to the presence of God. And drawing near to a holy God is not something that you can do carelessly. Okay, you, you can't just wander into the White House to approach the President of the United States. There are boundaries and rules about who gets to go in there, how much less the God of the universe. The difference is that many of the boundaries in Washington, D.C. are there to protect the President from you— But the boundaries in the temple are to protect you from God. That's a sinless, perfect ruler of the universe in there. And according to the Bible, we are rebels against his rule. A rebel can't just walk into the throne room of the king he's rebelling against and not expect consequences. So God sets up boundaries. In the Old Testament, you have to prepare yourself before going into the temple by going through certain rituals that remind people that they are drawing near to a holy God. And only certain people chosen by God, called priests, can enter into the holy place, which is one step closer to the presence of God than the courtyard that anyone else can enter. So you have the courtyard where anyone can go into, and then the holy place, priests can go into, and the holy of holies, which is where God's presence is. That's right at the center. So only priests who are descendants of Aaron can go into the holy place. And again, they have to go through various rituals before they can do that. Those are described in Exodus 30. If you want some uh, good reading this afternoon, you can read those. Um, So they can only go into the the holy place if they've gone through these rituals. And the the, the holy place is where the altar of incense is located. And that's where Uzziah is. The altar of incense is actually located right in front of the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. He's standing right in front of the presence of God. And so when he's doing that, he's burning incense. We we know he's right there in the holy place, in the place where only priests are allowed to go. And Uzziah is not a priest, okay? This is is not good. He's blown past God's boundaries, and he ought to know better. Verses 17 to 18 say this. But Azariah the priest went in after him. With 80 priests of the Lord who are men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, "It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God." Oh, how about the courage of these priests to confront King Uzziah? These guys are incredibly brave. I mean, read the rest of chronicles and see how things go for people who confront kings about wrongdoing. But these guys have the courage to speak truth to power, and they confront Uzziah in the holy place and tell him to get out of there. And now, at this point, Uzziah has a choice. He can, like David, who, when confronted by Nathan, say, You're right, I've sinned, and he can leave. Or he can just stubbornly press on. Verses to follow describe his response. Then Uzziah was angry. Now, he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. Now we don't know what would have happened to Uzziah if he had obeyed the priests when they first tried to correct him. But I think it's important that it's only after he disregards their correction that the skin disease breaks out. It's like he's given one last chance to do the right thing and God punishes him only after he continues to stubbornly disobey. There are are no excuses for Uzziah. The rot that was going on inside of him now becomes external. It's, It's visible on his forehead for all to see. So the priests, they rush Uzziah out of the temple, and because of the purity laws that existed at the time, Uzziah now has to live separate from the people. Verse 21 talks about this. It says, Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Uzziah, the most powerful and prosperous and successful king, Since Solomon, he lives out his days alone outside the city with his son ruling in his place. And his skin is a constant and visible reminder that his success and power went to his head and led to his ruin. And not only that, but when he dies, Uzziah is buried in a field outside the city rather than the tombs of the kings inside the city. The stigma of his sin and leprosy follow him even in death. So what lessons can we learn from Uzziah's life? The main lesson, I think, is this, is that success is more dangerous to your soul than failure. Nobody wants to fail, and I wouldn't wish failure on anyone. And failure can also be fertile ground for destruction. I mean, failure can drive us to depression or to dependency on uh, substances or distractions like alcohol, drugs, debt, pornography, food, all these things. But most people, at least to some extent, recognize that those things are destroying them. But success can lead to pride, and pride is blind. Pride is unaware of the spiritual rot that's taking place inside of us. Emily and I love to garden. Um, and Actually, I just love what the garden produces. Emily actually loves to garden. I, I like the fresh vegetables, though. And this year we put a garden in our, back, in our backyard, and we planted two zucchini plants in it. We put the seeds in the ground in the spring, and it the, uh, quickly sprouted. The leaves got big, the flowers were pollinated, and the zucchinis began to grow. We got really excited. But pretty soon, the plant started to die. The zucchinis, they stayed small and got mushy. The leaves turned kind of yellow and droopy and eventually fell off. And what we found out, after the plant was already dead, is that a little insect called a squash vine borer, it's a little moth, and it had laid its eggs on the stem of our plant, and when the little moth larvae hatched, they drilled a hole, they cut a hole into the, into the stem, they crawled inside there, and they began devouring the inside of the stem. So from the outside, everything looked fine, but inside, everything was completely rotten. It was brown and mushy. We didn't know the rot was there until it was, until it was too late. Pride is like that, and success is a breeding ground for pride. Pride. Because after we begin to experience success, it's so easy to convince ourselves that our success is our doing. It's it's because of of our brilliance or our hard work, we've earned it. So there are three insights, I think, that we can gain from the story about success and pride. First, uh, pride forgets God. Remember that Uzziah was, was marvelously helped by God, as well as by the people that were all around him. But his pride and his success led him to forget all of that. Forgetfulness of God is just as dangerous as hatefulness of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The prophet Hosea, he talks about forgetfulness as well. God addressed the people of Israel through him. He said this, But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. And then they forgot me. So, where are we forgetting God? At work, in a specific relationship, in the entertainment we consume. When God grants us success, we need to remember the giver, not just the gifts. And one of the ways that we remember the giver is by building rituals into our lives that lead us to proper worship. Remember that Uzziah's sin was improper worship. And so one of, our, one of our most important rituals as Christians is gathering together weekly to, for corporate worship. And many of us got really good at skipping church during COVID. It was easier to skip when we were at home because no one would notice that we were missing. And some of us have gotten into bad habits around this, but, but we need to remember that worshiping together and hearing God's word proclaimed it's one of the most important ways that we remember the giver of every good gift. We need to be here because it's good for our souls. Second insight. Pride ignores limits. God put specific limitations on who was allowed to come into the temple and even further limits on who could go into the holy place to burn incense. These limits were there not for God's sake but for the sake of the people. And I don't need to list examples. You can think of famous or successful people, athletes, artists, politicians, business leaders, pastors and ministry leaders, who became successful and decided at some point that certain rules no longer applied to them. And for so many, it eventually comes crashing down. Broken relationships, legal trouble, mental breakdowns, ruined reputations. So what limits are we chafing against? What rules are we trying to convince ourselves don't apply to us? Do we think our bodies won't eventually fall apart if we don't take care of them with a healthy diet and exercise and enough sleep? Where are we telling? Where are we not telling the truth in our business or personal relationships because it's just not convenient right now? What is a thing about which you think I can get away with it if I'm just a little more careful? It's a sign that we're pushing against God's boundaries. Uh, Paul David Tripp says of limits, uh, limits are not in the way of what God intends to do through us because they are the product of his wise and loving choice. What he calls us to is possible to do inside the limits that God has set. So embrace the limits that God has given us. God has placed certain limits on our bodies, so embrace the gift of sleep. Be truth-tellers, not just because God says so, but because it's, also because it's best for you and those around you. Bring what you are keeping in the darkness out into the light. God's limits are good, and he puts them in place for our own good. Third insight, pride ignores correction. At some point, like Uzziah, pride is often finally exposed. And at that point, we have a choice. We can either embrace the correction, or we can push God further away. A voice of correction could be a friend, a boss, a co worker. It could be the Holy Spirit pricking your conscience. So, are we listening or are we responding with self righteous anger? As Christians, we need to be people who embrace correction. We are all a work in progress and we all need each other to show us our blind spots and help us on the path of discipleship. And not only do we need each other, but we also need a mediator. Uzziah was a king, he was not a priest. A priest mediates between a holy God and sinful people. And Uzziah decided to be his own mediator. And we do the same thing. We try to plead our own case before God. Look at how good I am. Look at how kind or successful or generous I am. Well, we, we play the comparison game. At least I'm better than those people. Either way, we're trying to be our own mediator and establish our own righteousness before God. But we need a different mediator. We need a true priest who can go into the presence of God and plead our case for us. A mediator who is not contaminated with the rot of sin and pride. It's only when united to Jesus, who is our priest and our king, that we can enter into the presence of our holy God, where the delightful worship of God purges us of all pride. And you may notice that Christians don't have a temple uh, where we go to to make sacrifices and burn incense. The place where God resides is no longer a tent that we carry with us everywhere we go. It's not a building in Jerusalem. When the Apostle Paul says of the church, you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's saying the God of the universe has taken up residence in you. Uzziah couldn't go near the presence of God without serious consequences. But this side of the cross For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, the presence of God goes with us everywhere that we go. The cloud that led the people in the desert, that represented God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple, it now dwells in us. We become mini-temples that bring God's presence with us everywhere that we go, into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and everywhere else. So let's be good stewards of his presence this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for sending your son as both king and priest. A king who reigns with justice and righteousness in a way that David and Solomon and Uzziah never could. A priest who can go into the temple and plead our case. And thank you for making us, the church, the new temple, the new place where you dwell among your people. In the things that we do this week... When we go to a restaurant or the gym, at home or to our workplaces, may we be continually reminded that you are with us, that you are there to comfort and to guide, to reprove and correct. May we steward your presence well this week. Empower us for the work you have given us and help us to love our neighbors well. Amen.